turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you think about different items in your life and in my life, we associate different things with um, specific activities or specific events. So if I am to say the word helmet, you probably think of either a football type sport or you think of maybe bike riding or motorbikes. When I say the word boots, you probably think of work. When I say the word roses, you probably think of love and romance and Valentine's Day. Whether that's right or wrong, that's probably what you think of. All right. And when we think about different passages of Scripture, we do the same thing. So we have different passages of Scripture, different books of the Bible that we associate with an event. And so when we think about Ephesians 5, especially the end of Ephesians 5, you probably think of marriage and what marriage is supposed to look like. When I mention Song of Solomon, you hopefully think of love in a marriage union. When I talk about John 3.16, you probably think of evangelism. And when you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you probably think of love. And I think we do that sometimes with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well, where we're going to be today. And I think a lot of times when we think of 1 Corinthians 13, our mind goes to resurrection and as it goes to resurrection, our immediate thought is the funeral home. And when somebody dies, we read 1 Corinthians 15, and we think about how great it will be that they will be resurrected and that this life is not all there is. And that's good. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying that's bad. However, I think that it's a very small view of what 1 Corinthians 15 is actually here for us to do. It's not simply for us to encourage one another when we lose a loved one or when somebody's at the funeral home, we read them 1 Corinthians 15 and pat them on the back and tell them, uh, it's okay, so-and-so is not dead, really, you know, they're in heaven, you'll see them again. And that's because 1 Corinthians 15 actually has a great deal of application for how we live today. That's really what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to tell them as he builds his case through 1 Corinthians 15, he gets to verse 58, and that's where he really says, all this doctrine is good and great, but if all we have is this head knowledge and we encourage each other at the funeral home and tell them, well, so-and-so will be seen again, this is not the end, then we really don't understand and haven't applied the message of 1 Corinthians 15 to our lives. And so I believe the resurrection is our reason for hope as believers. It's a thing that we yearn for. It's a thing that we look forward to as we go through life, or at least it should be. And many, many religions and many people groups around the world look forward to the resurrection. They look forward to this resurrection life. In Ghana, one of the things that they would do, especially when a chief would die, is they would actually look for people that were not from that chief's town, that were out too late at night. They would 
too, out too late at night and they would take a knife and behead them and bury these individuals' heads with the chief so that the chief would have servants in the afterlife. Because you can't send your chief into the afterlife having no servants. There was this yearning for something greater than they had in this life. With all the servants that they already had in this life, they wanted some more in the afterlife. And so as we as believers understand the afterlife, and as we live in light of the resurrection, and the truth that's involved in the resurrection, it'll change how we relate to our spouses, it'll change how we relate to our parents, it'll change how we relate to our children, it'll change how we relate to our coworkers and our neighbors. And it'll change how we relate to the body of Christ, our local church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. So the big idea is believers must faithfully minister in the knowledge of Christ's victory. We as believers are to be faithfully ministering, and we do so not simply with this idea that um, this is all there is, but rather there's something more. There is actual hope in our faith. So Paul, as he goes through 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to read the whole chapter, we're going to read different sections of it, is going to explain to them the problems that are there when they have this idea that is wrong. So some of them in 1 Corinthians, some of the Corinthians were thinking that the resurrection wasn't real. And so Paul is going to use the book of 1 Corinthians especially verses 14 through 18, to explain to them, if you approach life with this conclusion, that the resurrection is not real, these are the implications that have to follow as a result. And as I think about cause and effect, I thought about um, a poem that I liked as a child. And it has a bunch of cause and effects that are really quite ridiculous. But hopefully it'll get you thinking in this mindset. And Paul's actually going to come through and say, all these results, these effects that you thought were as a result of not having a resurrection are actually false. As you'll see, um, they are in this poem as well. These are ridiculous conclusions that children should not use when their parents tell them to go to bed. So this is, If You Make Me Go to Bed Now by Jeff Moss. If you make me go to bed now, I am sure that I would hear the sound of a mosquito buzzing loudly in my ear. So of course I try to swat him, as I saw him try to land, but I'd miss and break the bed lamp, and I know I'd hurt my hand. So I need to find some bandages to help to ease the pain, but in the dark I'd bang my knee so hard I need a cane, and the ache would be so awful that I wouldn't sleep a wink, so I'd go to school next morning, and I wouldn't even think. So of course I'd fail my math test, and my other subjects too. I'd be so sad and embarrassed there'd be nothing left to do except run away from home, about as far as I could go. So I'd limp off to Alaska. I'd drudge through ice and snow, till I meet a hungry grizzly bear, all fierce and mean and mad. And as that grizzly ate me, I'd remember mom and dad. Yes, I'd think of my dear parents and their final words to me. Get into bed this minute. 
Turn that light off instantly. Let this poem be a warning to all parents everywhere. If you send your kids to bed, they may be digested by a bear. All right? Absolutely ridiculous conclusions that he gets from, if you make me go to bed, this is what will happen. And you see the absolute ridiculous conclusions that Paul says, if you say there is no resurrection, these are the absolute ridiculous conclusions you will arrive at in verses 14 through 18. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 18, and you'll see Paul outline those conclusions. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So Paul outlines really four different ridiculous conclusions. If we say there is no resurrection, what does that mean? First of all, proclaiming the gospel is a waste of time. There's no point in spending time building relationships with people. There's no point in trying to explain to people you're a sinner, Christ died, and you need to believe him if there is no resurrection. There is no hope. This is an empty religion without the resurrection. But not only that, the apostles are liars. The apostles are liars, and you shouldn't listen to them because they're not trustworthy. They can't tell you the truth. They didn't tell you the truth. They told you fake stories. And so the idea is just forget it. Go back to your pagan ways. Go back to worshiping multiple gods. It's all right. The apostles lied to you if there is no resurrection. Because that is the key foundational aspect upon which Christianity is based. We are still slaves to sin. There is no freedom. There is no ability for the believer then to live a life that is free from sin. You're still enslaved to sin. You actually have to sin. But not only that, finally, this life is all there is. There is nothing more. Once you live this life, there is no physical resurrection. Some of their religions back in that day allowed for the immortality of the soul, but there was no immortality of a physical body. So you might have a soul that's floating out there someplace, but there is no physical body. There is no enjoyment of any of these physical realities that Christianity allows for with the new kingdom that is coming. So these are the ridiculous conclusions that you arrive at if you start with this foundation that there is no resurrection. So then Paul spends part of the rest of the chapter outlining the truths of and countering these ideas that there is no resurrection so all these crazy, ridiculous ideas come about. And so if there is a resurrection then, proclaiming the gospel is a requirement. And so you see them doing this. And he he begins 1 Corinthians 15 and he tells them, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which 
also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So you see the importance of preaching. And you tie this in with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, where Paul tells us that he actually preaches out of compulsion. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, Paul's talking in the larger context about his rights, and he uses the fact that he gives up his rights to receive financial support from the First Corinthians, and he says, I give up my rights to receive financial compensation from you, and so you should be willing to give up things that you have the right to do for other believers. And in the middle of all that, he says that he doesn't preach because he wants financial compensation. He preaches because he's under compulsion. He has to do it. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So it's not something that you can choose to do. Paul says that preaching the gospel is a requirement for him as a believer. It's something he has to do. It's not an option. Paul then also counters this idea that the apostles recorded lies, that they told false statements, that they were giving out fake news. And so verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the, Lord, the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. It's not false news. It's not fake news. It's actually happened. People saw Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to people, and this is the actual truth that they're proclaiming. It is not fake news. But then you turn with me to verse 50. And in verse 50, Paul begins to develop the argument that there is a physical body. There has to be a physical body. Because the physical body that we have now cannot go to heaven because it is corrupt. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 
we have a physical body that will replace the one that we have today to look forward to. And so we look forward to that. And so this idea that there is no physical body coming is also something that is a ridiculous conclusion. It can't be that way because our physical bodies that we have now cannot inherit the kingdom that is to come. But that's not the final conclusion that Paul debunks. And I think that for us right now, probably the most important truth for us as believers in the church age is this one. We are no longer slaves to sin. So before salvation, we were slaves to sin. So while we could do occasional good things, we had to sin. That's who we were. We are enslaved to it. So verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. We are bound to it. We are under this old system, and while we could try to live for God, while we could try to please God in our own flesh with human means, we were incapable of doing so. And so now we are no longer slaves to sin, but rather we're slaves to righteousness. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, and you see Paul outline the fact that we are now slaves to righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you are delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So now the believer is able to live a life that pleases God. Now the believer is able to live a righteous life and it's compelled by and motivated by God's grace in our lives so Paul's made this argument and he's told them there are really crazy ideas that come about from this idea that there is no resurrection and he's explained to them all these ideas that you may have if you think that there is no resurrection are completely un founded there is no basis for them and in fact if you hold that premise you actually have a hope that is no hope you have a faith that is vain and so all these truths now culminate in verse 57 and paul bursts out in praise to god and he says but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ and now after he's explained all these doctrinal truths and he's moved through systematically and ex explained how the resurrection works, what does it mean for us today, now he says in verse 58, all this is true about the resurrection. And if all this is true about the resurrection, this is how Emmanuel Baptist Church must function today. This is how... You as individual believers, this is how I as an individual believer have to function today. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that moves us then from this idea of all these truths that are true about the resurrection. And he says, this practically looks like these three steps as you live your Christian life. It means that you're grounded in truth. You understand what truth is. It means that you toil for Christ. And it means that you have a new kind of mindset that you use to live out your life today. So what does it mean, what does it look like to be grounded in truth? And first off, he says, it means you're steadfast. It means that when things come that could move you in your life, that you remain grounded in those truths. And primarily, this is a reference to the resurrection. So Paul's purpose as he works through this book is, he's primarily saying, the truth that you're supposed to be steadfast in is this idea of the resurrection. But it should include many other areas of doctrinal truth. Truths that I imagine and hope that you are familiar with. Who is Jesus? What makes a book of the Bible scripture? Why is the Apocrypha not scripture? What is it that we are waiting for today? What is it that motivates us and that we are yearning for and longing for today as believers? We're looking forward to the coming of Christ to take us to be with him. And so all these truths are what we're supposed to be grounded in. Paul's primarily emphasizing here understanding and living in light of the resurrection. But it includes many more truths than that. But how do we how do we practically equip ourselves to understand these truths? That's where the preaching of God's word comes in. That's where our singing, our singing should be teaching you doctrinal truth. I think probably one of the things that I regret from my childhood the most is uh, I didn't really pay attention as I sang in church to what I was actually singing and what the words of those songs were teaching me. So as children, you should be involved in singing. As adults, you should be involved in singing and thinking through, what does this song teach me about who Jesus is? What does this song teach me about how I'm supposed to live this next week as I'm going through my homeschooling, as I'm going to public school? It means we have opportunities for growth, like men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. And it will also include conversations with other believers in which we challenge one another and encourage one another to grow. But not only does he say, be steadfast. He goes on and he says, it also means to be grounded in truth means to be immovable. And so there's the importance for us to develop and hold to strong biblical convictions. And as we develop these biblical convictions, when new ideas, when new fads come, they could easily move us and change our minds from holding to this doctrinal stance. We are able to say, no, I have biblical convictions. I understand why we do communion this way. I understand why 
our church functions this way? Why is it that we as a church vote? Why don't we just have a board of elders that decide everything for us and we just say, okay, that's great, we'll go ahead. Why do we as a church vote? Is there a scriptural basis for voting to do asphalt? Is there a scriptural basis for voting to decide whether or not we were getting rid of the pews and bringing in chairs? Is there a scriptural basis? You should know that and you should understand how that works. And so when somebody comes in and tries to challenge how church government functions, how another aspect of what we believe or how we as a church function, we should have biblical convictions that are immovable. Now, as I think about the idea of being immovable, as a child, we used to go to the beach in Ghana. And I loved to walk in the beach, and I would, you know, when I was about three foot tall, I could walk a little ways into the beach, and the waves would hit me, and I was still immovable. And I could feel the sand going around my feet, and I was a little bit more immovable. But if I got to where the water was up to here on me as a three-foot child, um, I wasn't very immovable when the waves came. <laughs> but my dad could go up to where it was this high on me, and he was still immovable. immovable, as solid and as firm and as strong as I looked up to my dad and thought, dad is really strong. He's never going to get pushed away by these waves. If we'd put my dad um, in Japan when they had their tsunami, my dad would have been swept away. Okay? We need to be even stronger than we may look at our parents as immovable in the ocean waves. And that's what we should be striving for as we develop our biblical convictions, as we understand doctrinal truth and how we're supposed to live them out. But Paul doesn't just say be strong and grounded in the truth. He goes on. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So we're supposed to be toiling for Christ. It means work. It's not easy. So Jesus is not satisfied with us when we're just grounded in truth. If all we do is understand truth and we're steadfast and unmovable and the waves of change come and they hit us and people challenge our doctrinal convictions and all we do is we stand firm to those doctrinal convictions and we're never serving. We're never ministering to one another. And that doesn't have to be in a formal way. That doesn't mean that you have to actually go to... um, Kids for Truth and actually be involved in Kids for Truth. It could be that your ministry is something that is very, very private, something that is one-on-one with other believers where you learn how to ask them good questions and learn through those questions, what is Joe struggling with today? How can I encourage Joe today to continue living for the Lord and point him to truths of Scripture that will help him to stay steadfast, grounded because Joe is being tempted by this other doctrinal conviction or Joe is being having a hard time dealing with the situation that is in his life and he's tempted to leave the church because he's struggling with circumstances that are in his life it's not always something that's public it's something sometimes it's very private 
Some of you may know that John Mondo and John Roth last year for VBS spent a good portion of the time in pastor study simply praying for VBS. That's an excellent illustration of something that you may be able to do. Maybe you're not able to be at every ministry of the church. Probably you're not able to because most of you have jobs or you're in school or your parents have jobs and can't bring you all the time, okay? But even at work, most of us can find a little bit of time as we're at work to pray for the ministry that's going on at the church. Most of us have the ability to send a text to somebody and encourage them if we don't see them in church. So it means that we're involved. This ministry, though, is supposed to be abounding. It's supposed to be overflowing. It's not something where we're just involved in one aspect of ministry, but rather we should see ourselves involved in many different areas of ministry. And that might not be always in a formal way where, you know, I teach kids for truth or I lead the Sunday school class or I lead sing song leading or I play the instrument or I clean the church or whatever it is that's a formal ministry. We should be seeking to find multiple ways in which we can be involved in ministry. And how we're involved in ministry changes over the years. My grandparents have retired and both of them were missionaries and the way they minister now is different. Grandpa goes on a lot of trips. Grandpa ministers in his church. One of my grandparents has done a lot of interim pastorates. His churches have been looking for a new pastor. He's stepped in. He's been able to preach. And he's not able to go and do a lot of the pastoral-type ministry, a one-to-one -one basis, but he's able to fulfill, fill the pulpit. So what that ministry looks like may change, but we're supposed to be involved in ministry and we're supposed to be involved in and abounding in that ministry but that's not all that paul says that this understanding of the resurrection is supposed to do for us therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the lord so as we go through our labor we're motivated not by a sense of well, everybody will see me, or um, I'm so glad that I'm able to help with this social activity, or something like that. It is an understanding that what we do in this life for the Lord has eternal purpose. It has eternal consequences, because there is a resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, there would be no eternal consequences for this effort that we're involved in. But because there is a resurrection... There will be physical bodies that will be resurrected, and there are eternal consequences for our work that we're involved in today. So Christ's resurrection and our coming resurrection provides us with a new mindset in life, a new motivation, a new way to look at life. And so the resurrection isn't something that we simply read about when we go to a funeral home. Yes, we can do that, and that's good, and it's proper to remember that this life is not all there is. But if all we do is remember the resurrection when somebody dies, and we don't continually remind ourselves that the resurrection is in view, if we don't live in light of that and minister in light of that, then the resurrection effectively for you is an empty and vain thing. It's not enough to 
simply look at the resurrection when somebody dies. It has to be what we wake up and think of. There is a resurrection. My service today, whether it be by texting somebody or calling somebody or praying for pastor or praying for the counseling that pastor is involved in or praying for somebody that you didn't see at church, has eternal reward. It's not always formal, something that everybody sees, but we have to be involved in ministry, and it's motivated by this understanding that this life is not all that there is. So Christ's victory through the resurrection should be our new way of looking at life events. It's a new motivation. And so Paul's challenging them. Understand the resurrection and live and minister to the person next to you in the pew. Minister to your family in light of this new motivation, in light of these new truths. And because of Christ's resurrection, we have a purpose for all our labor for the Lord. It's not in vain. There's a reason, and we may not ever know how our ministry pans out. We may never know how that person actually came to the Lord. Earlier this year, I told you about um, one of the people that worked for my family while we were in Ghana, and we ministered to him for over 20 years before he got saved. It is possible that we could have died after 19 years of ministering to Mr. Watchman. That's what we called him. Um, and we may never have known on this earth how we were involved in seeing Watchman come to the Lord. So you may not see how your text messages, how your phone calls, how your notes of appreciation or notes of encouragement or your formal ministry in whatever area it is encourages and impacts eternity. But we have a new purpose, and we need to be working in light of that. So this motivation goes beyond any other motivation. One of the things that I find I am often motivated about, and I have to try to recorrect my thinking is, I'm motivated by vacation. A lot of times I use a lot of my vacation to actually go on and take night classes or day classes, and so I don't actually get use vacation for vacation. But when I have vacation that I'm actually going to use for vacation, you know, just sit back, do nothing except for something with my wife or, you know, hanging out with my family. And I go, oh, vacation is planned two months from now. And I can live almost every day at work in light of, in two months, I'm going on vacation. And won't that be nice? I'll be with my family. I'll be with my wife. I won't have to go to work. I won't have the frustrations from work. I won't have the aches and pains from work. In a month and three weeks, I'm going on vacation. And we can live those whole two months with the wrong motivation, the wrong emphasis. And we can do the same sort of thing with our ministry in the church. You can have the wrong type of motivation. It may not be that you're motivated by, oh, wow, I'll be on vacation and I won't have to be at church. But you can have the wrong type of motivation. It may be that you want to be seen. It may be something other than that. But our motivation for service, our motivation for ministry is supposed to be guided by and motivated by our understanding of God's word.
So as we think about conclusion, as we think about what does this mean for us as we live our lives, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves a number of questions. Are you grounded in the truth? Do you understand truth? When I ask you questions about God's word, can you answer those questions? And do you have conviction about your answers? One of the things that my professors didn't like about the way I answered questions when I got my um, final um, oral examination was sometimes I was hesitant in how I answered. So I'd be like, um, and then I'd say something. Or I'd say something, and I'd say uh, something that would kind of like make it sound softer. And then my professor's like, okay, we like your answer, but you need to say it with conviction. Like, don't um about it, but be like, this is what I believe. Do you have conviction, and do you answer questions about what you believe with conviction? Do you know the truth? And do you love the truth enough that you're willing to state it emphatically? But not only that, how are you ministering at Emmanuel Baptist Church? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's formal and that everybody sees. But if I were to go to your neighbors and I were to ask your neighbors, um, what do you think about Joe? What are what's important to Joe? Would they say Joe loves his church? Would they say Joe loves the Lord, and I see that demonstrated through his love for the church. I see that demonstrated through Joe's care for and compassion for the believers who are in his church. Joe's talked to me about things about God, or would they say? You know, Joe really loves uh, golf. I don't think any of you golf, so I think I'm safe. Oh, I'm sorry, Roger. <laughs> okay, but um, my professors want me to get a hobby, and so I got to find a hobby. I can talk to you about golf later. That's kind of like the um, stereotypical pastor hobby. Did you know that? Now you know something that you didn't know before. All right. I have a number of professors that golf. And so, yeah. Anyways, um, but what, what do they, What are you known for in the community? What do your neighbors know you for? Is it for your love for God or is it for a love for basketball or football or NFL or rock climbing? Maybe I'll do rock climbing. I'm seriously considering that. Anyways, um, while it may appear many times that our labor is in vain, it is not. We have a purpose. We have a reason for what we do, and that reason, that hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we go through this next week, I'd encourage you to minister to other believers and to do it with this new type of outlook. The resurrection isn't simply about the funeral home. It's about today. It's about tomorrow. It's about the rest of our lives. Let's minister faithfully remembering the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that you have provided us with all that we need to live a life that honors and glorifies you. We pray that you would help us to live in light of that fact. 
We pray that you would help us to have a desire to minister to other believers and that we would faithfully do so for the rest of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.